Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor here at BioCentury, and today I'm joined by... I am Simone Fishburne, editor-in-chief. Stephen Hansen, director of Biopharma Intelligence. And Steve Osden, Washington editor. On today's podcast, what do two high-profile biotech IPOs say about the state of the IPO window. How are new regulations in China affecting how biotechs there plan their path to the public markets? And a flurry of activity in Inflation Reduction Act lawsuits provides insights into strategies for attacking and defending the IRA. But first, it's not too late to register to attend the East-West Biopharma Summit, which kicks off October 2nd, in Kendall Square, BioCentury Bay Helix and Insights partner McKinsey are once again bringing together global C-level executives and top international VCs to speak about the best models for globalizing biotech value and the evolution of the cross-border landscape. Takeda's Andy Plump. Bristol Myers, Robert Plenge, Biogen's Chris Wiebacher, Truen Capital's Marietta Wu are among the panelists who will be joining Simone, Lauren Martz, and some of my other colleagues. So head to biocentryeastwest.com to register now or to see the extensive schedule of events. Already a pair of closely watched biotechs Radio Pharma Company, Ray's Bio, and neurology company, Numora, raised a combined $540 million in NASDAQ IPOs late last week. They were the seventh and eighth biopharmas to price NASDAQ offerings of at least $25 million this year. Steven, I'd love to get your takeaways from what these financings mean for the IPO market. Sure. Thanks, Jeff. So, I mean, as, as you said, I mean, with only eight IPOs this year, we're still very much uh, at the sort of nascent, is it going to start or is it not going to start stage for IPOs? But I think what it clearly points to is that this is still very much a place for for late stage companies. You know, you really have to have proof of concept data. As as you said, Raise Bio and Numora were both in phase three already. So it's really a place for mature companies with what I've been hearing oftentimes Investors really want to see proven management teams, folks that have already made money for investors. That can be a key attribute as well. You know, one of the positive things I think that that I heard about these two deals is that there was actually quite a bit of new money coming into these deals. So it's not the IPOs that we were seeing kind of being forced out last year or sort of in late 21, where it was almost all insider participation and really you know, those deals are almost no different than a uh, sort of private round being done on a public market. Instead, there was, what I heard was that there was actually quite a broad swath of uh, new investor interest, whether it was specialists, some of the large sort of mutual fund pools of capital coming in. So, um, you know, that I think is is a pretty good sign. Thanks, Stephen. Well, given your optimism, maybe you can also tell us what you're hearing, because as I look at the table of IPOs this year, a lot of them are still down on their IPO price. Do you think there's just 
still a feeling that it's early days and it'll go north from here. I hope so. What What are you hearing about that? Some of it, I think, has to do with valuation. So, I mean, um, I mean, if you look at so raised bio, their post money valuation was about a billion dollars, whereas Numora was nearly two point six billion. So, if we're just talking about the two that just came out on Friday, I mean, two point six is that's pretty high for. I mean, just just to give you a bit of context, um, Sage Therapeutics, pretty well known company, two approved products, is valued at one point three billion. So. Numora coming out at twice Sage's valuation, I think, is maybe one of the reasons why we saw the differential and how these two have performed, at least in their first day. Just to, to note, Numora was down about 4%, and I think they're ticking down a little bit more today as we're recording this on Monday, whereas Raise Bio jumped uh, 33% on their first day. So I think investors are still pretty sensitive to valuation when it comes to some of these IPOs. So that's something that we'll have to keep an eye on. Um, as to the yeah, before- I, I just wanted to note on, on that front, so Acelerin, which was one of the big IPOs of the year, that debuted at $1.75 billion. And I know that a lot of people are talking about the fact that it's taken a hit, but it's still, as of today, is north of a billion, right? It, it's sort of, it, it's lost, that's but right. it's still got a pretty respectable valuation there. Yeah. And I think that's probably, probably some of that is still to people wanting to figure out what happened there, <laughs> given that that was such a well-known target validated target in the hydrogenitis superativa indication. And so I think there's still a bit of curiosity as to what actually happened with that and whether it still might have a feature there. But they're also developing another indication. So it's definitely not a situation where their lead asset's dead either. So, But Acelerin is is an interesting one that I think we'll probably spend more time on in maybe a month or so as we get towards the uh, towards our Carter preview and we start talking a little bit more about sort of some of these issues around timing of events for IPOs. So just to to zero in here, of the six 2023 listings of 25 million or more on NASDAQ before last week's two, two are up. So structure is up 118% or or was going into the close of the week. Apogee is the other one that finished last week above its IPO price. Yeah. And and I hope you all noticed how fluently Stephen pronounced the disease that we call HS. <laughs> Showing off a little bit there, I guess. Well, you did do a couple of nice stories <laughs> earlier this year. So, uh, Stephen, um, biotechs in China, uh, there's a lot out there. They're mulling going public. They were surely watching those NASDAQ IPOs, especially now that new regulatory requirements by China's Securities Commission have made the once red-hot Shanghai Star Exchange quite a bit less attractive. Uh, What's changed with Star and how does it affect the calculus for China's biotechs who are looking to go public? Yeah, so if you recall, just very briefly, um, back in about starting late 2019, heading into 2020, the Shanghai Star Exchange started basically accepting biotech offerings. And there were there was sort of a flurry of filings. You had companies raising 200, 300, 400 million US dollars, and then seeing their prices go up 200, 300%. This is a market that has a lot of retail, but it was just a very strong, very sort of kind of high-flying market where companies were able to raise a lot of money at um, pretty spectacular valuations. Um, 
it's fallen off quite a bit even of even this year we've only seen one price this year and i believe it was priced in june but a recent decision by the china securities commission effectively what they were looking to do was to try and curb what what they were sort of terming as sort of pump and dump, dump schemes that were being done on mainland china exchanges where you had questionable companies listing on 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 a mainland exchange not necessarily the star but on one of china's mainland exchanges and they would, you know, hype up the stock on social media. Um, so that sounds familiar. And then basically the insiders or the founders would then sell all of their shares. And essentially retail investors were being left with a company that they were seeing significant losses on. And so to try and curb that, they essentially passed this rule last month that says that if you're not a company that's issuing cash dividends over the past three years, which no you know, clinical stage or pre-commercial biotech would be doing. And you do an IPO on a mainland exchange, but then you, the price of your IPO drops below what it was issued at. So if you go underwater, effectively, anyone who was a, an insider or founder you know, who controls more than 10% of the company can't sell their shares. So it effectively w- would mean that if, if you were to IPO there and for whatever reason, you had bad clinical data and your share price fell below the issue price. Any VCs or founders of, of a biotech company wouldn't be able to sell, the, sell their shares until the IPO was back above the price. And from, from the folks that I spoke to, they basically said that that's sort of just a no-go. That's sort of a non-starter. You know, there's no reason why you would choose to list there if that was a potential risk for your portfolio company. So it really means that, uh, you know, kind of going forward, probably Star is not going to be a place where we're going to see biotech's list. Now, now, what's the calculus between thinking about Hong Kong and NASDAQ? I know NASDAQ, uh, a few years ago at least, was changing its auditing requirements for some international companies. I've heard wind that China has changed some of its disclosure requirements for companies looking to go public. What's at play here, Stephen? Sure. Yeah, as you say, it sort of kind of leaves Hong Kong and um, NASDAQ as the two other primary options now for for a China-based biotech company. And you're right, the the auditing issue has largely been been solved now. There's basically been a compromise between the U.S. and, and, and the China governments about the auditing issue. So that's no longer an impediment. But as you as you say, there are disclosure issues. Several years ago, the SEC basically put out guidance that asked any China-based company to basically be extra transparent about the risks in their disclosures, in their filings, in their regulatory filings about the risks of operating under the Chinese government, operating um, in that sort of a regulatory environment. And so essentially asking for them to almost over-disclose or be extra you know, transparent about those risks. Then earlier this year, the Chinese uh, <laughs> Securities Commission essentially asked for not the full reverse of it, but basically asked, basically told companies that they needed to soften their disclosures around the risks of operating a business uh, in China. And so companies were kind of caught in limbo when it comes to if you want to listen to NASDAQ, you know, do you follow the China securities uh, guidance or, or, or requirements or do you follow the SEC's guidance. So it's it's a bit of a no man's land in terms of how you kind of navigate that. Stephen, it's really hard to know how to digest this. 
you know, saying that the star exchange kind of drops off the map for now, at least for China companies, you know, it did have a two year period, as the story points out, where it was the sort of, you know, place to go. Mm. Though I think Hong Kong exchange also listed a few. So the real question is, what kind of impact is this going to have? A company is just going to have to get, get access to capital, stay private longer. Um, and there seems to be a fair amount of private capital still in China biotech. Are they going to just suck it up and go to NASDAQ and deal with the disclosure requirements, go to Hong Kong? Does it really stymie the ability of China biotech to grow? I don't think it stymies the ability of the Chinese sector as a whole to grow, because I think you still have a well, you know, obviously a maturing market, uh, the 18A market in Hong Kong. And just to close the loop on that around disclosures. So essentially, when China asked for for companies to soften their disclosures around sort of government and regulatory risk, the Hong Kong exchange came out this summer and essentially said, we're not going to require this level of disclosures anymore. So there is a bit of a smoother path if they want to stick to those rules to go to Hong Kong. So, so you have the Hong Kong market where you can definitely raise, you know, as much capital as, as a biotech would need on in an IPO. There's still less experience in doing follow-ins there. There can be issues around liquidity potentially for some companies. Some companies have great liquidity on Hong Kong, but then I also, in some of my conversations, you know, I had, Someone told me that there was a company that had zero shares traded uh, over the course of two days earlier this year. So it's a bit hit and miss there, whereas that's obviously one of the potential advantages of NASDAQ is you've got larger, deeper pools of capital, potentially better liquidity. And then, frankly, there's just a bit more prestige is what I was told that comes with it. Um, I think both markets will serve them well. It's just we'll have to see where these issues around disclosures are going to have to reach a compromise. and, and do the same thing that they did for the auditing where, you know, the governments are going to have to come together and say, here's what we agree companies shouldn't, shouldn't say. All right. And we do have uh, at least one China biotech right now that's looking to list on NASDAQ. That's Adlai Norte. Uh, I believe I said that right. It uh, filed to go public on the U.S. exchange in July, though it recently removed the amount of money that it was seeking to raise and one of its underwriters. So we'll see what happens with that. The two IPO stories, Stephen's story on the scene with China's IPO options is up on our website, biocentry.com. And also we have our colleague Paul Bonanis's look at the NASDAQ IPOs that went out on Friday. All right. Thanks for those thoughts, Stephen. Busy week last week for biopharma lawsuits challenging the Inflation Reduction Act with oral arguments in the Chamber of Commerce suit coming on Friday. In a few days prior, the DOJ spelling out its defense of the IRA's Medicare drug price negotiation program. That was part of the government's legal opposition to a lawsuit filed by Merck here to tell us a little bit more about all of this, Washington editor Steve Uzzin. Steve. Uh, yeah, so the U.S. government's responses to the litigation challenging the constitutionality of the IRA's Medicare drug negotiation program really came into focus in the legal briefs in the Merck case and in briefs and oral arguments in the U.S. Chamber case. 
the government's basically making three sets of arguments. First, it says the lawsuits are efforts to use the courts to make policy and that industry should go to Congress if it wants changes in the law. Uh, parenthetically, I would say good luck with that. Second, it says the constitutional arguments lack merit and it cites longstanding drug regulation programs like the discounts that industry gives to the Department of Veterans Affairs to make the case that there's a precedent for Medicare drug price negotiation program. And then third, it says that um, some of the entities that have filed the lawsuits lack standing because they don't hold the marketing approvals. And then, and this gets to be kind of a, an interesting issue. So for example, Merck says it has standing because its drug Genuvia is on the list of the first 10 drugs subject to negotiation. But the NDA is actually technically held by a Merck subsidiary, Merck Sharp and Dome. And uh, the government says, you know what, um, Merck, you got nothing to do with this. Your subsidiary should have filed the suit, you know, so your suit should be thrown out. And if the subsidiary wants to sue, they can do that. But that would obviously delay everything by, by a long time. The Chambers of Commerce lawsuit cites another drug that's on the list, Imbruvica, and says, well, its member, AbbVie, manufactures Imbruvica. The government says, no, actually, uh, the, the BLA for Imbruvica is uh, filed by Pharmacyclics. Of course, um, AbbVie acquired Pharmacyclics, which is now a subsidiary of AbbVie. And so it's the same situation as, as with Merck on the standing issue. The companies are pushing back. They say that the standing issue is a technicality and a misstatement of the law. They also say the IRA is fundamentally different from the VA drug discount program, in part because the IRA is constructed in a way that makes it impossible to walk away from negotiations. And because, you know, look, Medicare is 50% of the drug market in the United States. Um, the VA is just a small part of it. So they say it's fundamentally a different thing. You know, what's going to happen next? Um, the next shoe I think that's going to drop in the litigation is going to be in the Chambers case, because the Chambers of Commerce have requested a preliminary injunction blocking the Medicare drug price negotiation program from going into effect. The government opposes this. Companies that have drugs that were selected for the first round of price setting have to decide by October 1st if they're going to participate in the process. So the chambers have asked the judge to rule in the case by October the 1st. We don't know whether he will or not, but it's possible that he will. And so we might know something uh, in the next two weeks about how that's going to go. Steve, a couple of things. Okay, I get the VA argument. The pharmacyclics one blows me away. I mean, that's extraordinary. One is the company was taken over, I don't know how many years ago. So a question I have for you is among the uh, experts that in lawyers and so on that you're speaking to, do they give you a sense of which of these rebuttals by the government is most likely to win, to 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 play out, or how 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 the different ones are likely to play out is probably a better way to ask that question. Yeah, no, I don't. I you know, look, there there are partisans on both sides of it, and it's like any lawsuit. The ones who are supporting the drug industry say that the arguments the government's making is preposterous, and that mm -hmm. um, sure they're going to lose. And people who support the Medicare drug negotiation program are equally confident that the government's going to prevail. So. I don't, I don't have a, a good sense of what's going to happen. The thing is that there are multiple lawsuits that are happening. Here's another thing that's complicated. In the chamber suit, the government said, well, look, you shouldn't issue a preliminary uh, injunction. He said, they said that to the judge because there are all these other lawsuits that are happening in the country. And if you issue a preliminary injunction, then you're, 
you're kind of jumping the gun on the, on the other lawsuits and they're, you're not allowing them to play out as they should. And it was interesting, the, the attorney for the chambers and the oral arguments kind of said, well, you know, there's there's some point to that and said to the judge, you know, you should still issue a preliminary injunction, but you should do it in a way that doesn't forestall these other cases from going forward. So you get into really technical areas of the law. Again, the whole issue on the standing and whether CMS can say, no, we're only going to deal with the subsidiaries that have the NDAs and the BLAs and not the parent companies. Again, that gets into very technical areas of law. So it's really hard to you know, to predict what's going to happen on those kinds of things. There's a couple of other shoes that are going to drop, though. This week, we're going to have a hearing at the Energy and Commerce Subcommittee. So we're going to see some political uptake on this, which is interesting because House Republicans have been very quiet about the IRA's drug pricing program, I think, because supporting uh, pharma companies is not a really good political strategy right now. But they're holding this hearing on Wednesday. John Crowley, the executive chairman of Amicus, and Vice Chair of Bio's Executive Committee is going to be testifying. So Steve Potts, a longtime cancer drug developer, a patient advocate, and um, Aaron Kesselheim, a Harvard Medical School professor, has a long history of supporting drug price controls and opposing the biopharma industry, is going to be testifying in support of the IRA. So that's going to be interesting. Steve, can we just go back for a minute to the, I think you said October 1st deadline for companies to decide if they enter into negotiation? Just outline for us, what are the issues at stake? Like, why not enter into negotiation? Well, they, no, look, they're all going to, they don't have a choice. It's, it's, they really, they, they say they've got a gun to their head and, and that's the truth because the things that will happen to companies that don't agree to, to enter into the price negotiations, or they say price setting are so severe that it's extraordinarily unlikely that anybody is going to opt not to do that. But it, it is a deadline and they're, they're using that. They're citing that to try to prompt um, the court to act. But I don't think that there's anyone who seriously thinks that any of these companies is going to uh, to walk away from this process. It's been set up in a way that doesn't really give them the, the opportunity to do that. All right. Thanks for that, Steve. Obviously, uh, it's keeping you busy. You had multiple stories uh, last week. More to come, I'm sure. Also up on biocentry.com, you'll find our annual back-to-school issues. This year, Simone and my colleagues looked at how biotechs can build value and climb market cap tiers to reach the top. In addition to our back-to-school package, also on biocentry.com, our colleague Danielle Golovin takes a look at 2022 Nobel Prize winner Carolyn Bertozzi's Click Chemistry Technology and why it could be key for allogeneic cell therapies. Bertozzi today joined Ace Padilla as Chief Scientific Advisor. We also round up the latest recommendations by EMA's CHIMP on what drugs the agency is recommending for approval in the EU, seven new medicines, including a biosimilar, as well as label extensions for 11. And if you're interested in learning more about the upcoming Biocentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit, you can find that on our website, as well as information on how to register for 
our November summit in Shanghai, which we are also putting on with Bay Helix and McKinsey. That's the China Healthcare Summit. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>